Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The Polar World Published in 1869 It is a popular description of man and nature in the Arctic and Antarctic regions of the globe. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special shout out to the Anchor supporters and Patreons that continue to sponsor the show. Your ongoing financial support is the ultimate compliment. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If you find the podcast helpful, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a review in your podcast app. It doesn't take long and it really does help out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Chapter 1 The Arctic Lands A glance at a map of the Arctic regions 
shows us that many of the rivers belonging to these three continents, Europe, Asia, America, discharge their waters into the polar ocean or its tributary bays. The territories drained by these streams, some of which, such as the Mackenzie, the Yukon, the Lena, the Yenisei, and the Obi, rank among the giant rivers of the earth, form, along with the islands within or near the Arctic Circle, the vast region over which the Frost King reigns supreme. Man styles himself the Lord of the Earth, and may with some justice lay claim to the title in more genial lands where, armed with the plough, he compels the soil to yield him a variety of fruits. But in those desolate tracts, which are winter-bound during the greater part of the year, he is generally a mere wanderer over its surface, a hunter, a fisherman, or a herdsman, and but few small settlements separated from each other by immense deserts, giving proof of his having made some weak attempts to establish a footing. It is difficult to determine with precision the limits of the Arctic lands, since many countries situated as low as latitude 60 degrees or even 50 degrees, such as South Greenland, Labrador, Alaska, Kamchatka, or the country about Lake Baikal, have in their climate and productions a decidedly Arctic character, while others of a far more northern position, such as the coast of Norway, enjoy even in winter a remarkably mild temperature, but they are naturally divided into two principal and well-marked zones, that of the forests and that of the treeless wastes. The latter, comprising the islands within the Arctic Circle, form a belt more or less broad, bounded by the continental shores of the North Polar Seas, and gradually merging toward the south into the forest region, which encircles them with a garland of evergreen conferry. This treeless zone bears the name of the Barren Grounds, or the Barrens in Northern America, and of Tundry in Siberia and European Russia. Its want of trees is caused not so much by its high northern latitude as by the cold sea winds which sweep unchecked over the islands or the flat coast lands of the polar ocean and for miles and miles compel even the hardiest plant to crouch before the blast and creep along the ground. Nothing can be more melancholy 
than the aspect of the boundless morasses or arid wastes of the tundra. Dingy mosses and grey lichens form the chief vegetation, and a few scanty grasses or dwarfish flowers that may have found a refuge in some more sheltered spot are unable to relieve the dull monotony of the scene. In winter, when animal life has mostly retreated to the south or sought a refuge in burrows or in caves, an awful silence interrupted only by the hooting of a snow owl or the yelping of a fox reigns over their vast expanse but in spring when the brown earth reappears from under the melted snow and the swamps begin to thaw enormous flights of wild birds appear upon the scene and enliven it for a few months an admirable instinct leads their winged legions from distant climes to the arctic wildernesses where in the morasses or lakes on the banks of the rivers on the flat strands or along the fish teeming coasts they find an abundance of food and where at the same time they can with greater security build their nests and rear their young some remain on the skirts of the forest region others flying farther northward lay their eggs upon the naked tundra eagles and hawks follow the traces of the natatorial and strand birds troops of partisans roam among the stunted bushes and when the sun shines the finch or the snow-bunting warbles his merry note. While thus the warmth of summer attracts hosts of migratory birds to the arctic wildernesses, shoals of salmon and the sturgeons enter the rivers in obedience to the instinct that forces them to quit the seas and to swim stream upward for the purpose of depositing their spawn in the tranquil sweet waters of the stream or lake about this time also the reindeer leaves the forests to feed on the herbs and lichens of the tundra and to seek along the shores fanned by the cooled sea breeze some protection against the attacks of the stinging flies that rise in myriads from the swamps. Thus, during several months, the tundra presents an animated scene in which man also plays his part. The birds of the air, the fishes of the water, the beasts of the earth, are all obliged to pay their tribute to the various wants to appease his hunger to clothe his body or to gratify his greed of gain but as soon as the first frosts of september 
announce the approach of winter. All animals, but with few exceptions, hasten to leave a region where the sources of life must soon fail. The geese, ducks and swans return in dense flocks to the south. The strand birds seek in some lower latitude a soft soil which allows their sharp beak to seize a burrowing prey. The waterfowl forsake the bays and channels that will soon be blocked up with ice. The reindeer once more return to the forest and in a short time nothing is left that can induce man to prolong his stay in the treeless plain. Soon a thick mantle of snow covers the hardened earth the frozen lake, the ice-bound river, and conceals them all. Seven, eight, nine months long, under its monotonous pall, except where the furious northeast wind sweeps it away and lays bare the naked rock. This snow, which after it has once fallen, persists until long after summer's day has effectually thawed it, protects it in an admirable manner, the vegetation of the higher latitudes, against the cold of the long winter season. For snow is so bad a conductor of heat, that in midwinter, in the high latitude of 78 degrees, 58. Rennes Lear Bay, while the surface temperature was at low minus 30 degrees, Kane found at two feet deep a temperature of minus 8 degrees at four feet plus 2 degrees and at eight feet plus 26 degrees or no more than six degrees below freezing points of water. Thus covered by a warm crystal snow mantle, the northern plants pass the long winter in a comparatively mild temperature, high enough to maintain their life, while without icy blasts, capable of converting mercury into a solid body, howl over the naked wilderness and, as the first snow falls, are more cellular and less condensed than the nearly impalpable powder of winter. Kane justly observes that no eider down in the cradle of an infant is tucked in more kindly than the sleeping dress of winter about the feeble plant life in the Arctic zone. Thanks to this protection and to the influence of a sun which for months circles above the horizon and in favourable localities calls forth the powers of vegetation in an incredibly short time even Washington, Grinnell Land and Spitsbergen 
are able to boast of flowers. Morton plucked a crucifer at Cape Constitution, and on the banks of Mary Minturn River, Kane came across a flower growth which, though drearily arctic in its type, was rich in the variety and colouring. Amid festuccia and other tufted grasses, twinkled the purple lichnies and the white star of the chickweed, and not without its pleasing associations, he recognised a solitary Hespersus, the arctic representative of the wallflowers of home. Next to the lichens and mosses, which form the chief vegetation of the treeless zone, the cruciferae, the grasses, the saxifragus, the caraflae, and the composat are the families of plants most largely represented in the barren grounds or tundra. Though vegetation becomes more and more uniform on advancing to the north, yet the number of individual plants does not decrease. When the soil is moderately dry, the surface is covered by a dense carpet of lichens, mixed in damper spots with Icelandic moss. In more tenacious soils, other plants flourish, not, however, to the exclusion of lichens, except in tracts and meadow ground, which occur in sheltered situations or in the alluvial inundated flats where tall reed grasses or dwarf willows frequently grow as closely as they stand. It may easily be supposed that the boundary line which separates the tundra from the forest zone is both indistinct and irregular. In some parts where the cold sea winds have a wider range, the barren grounds encroach considerably upon the limits of the forests. In others, where the configuration of the land prevents their action, the woods advance farther to the north. Thus the barren grounds attain their most southerly limit in Labrador, where they descend to latitude 57 degrees, and this is sufficiently explained by the position of that bleak peninsula, bounded on three sides of icy seas, and washed by cold currents from the north. On the opposite coasts of Hudson's Bay, they begin about 60 degrees and thence gradually rise toward the mouth of the Mackenzie, where the forests advance as high as 68 degrees or even still farther to the north along the low banks of that river. From the Mackenzie, the barrens again descend until they reach Bering Sea in 65 degrees north on the opposite or Asiatic shore in the land of the Tachuki 
they begin again more to the south, thence continually rise as far as the Lena, where Anjou found trees in 71 degrees north, and then fall again toward the Obi, where the forests do not even reach the Arctic Circle. From the Obi, the Tundri retreat farther and farther to the north, until finally on the coasts of Norway, in latitude 70 degrees, they terminate with the land itself. Hence we see that the treeless zone of Europe, Asia and America occupies a space larger than the whole of Europe. Even the African Sahara or the Pampas of South America are inferior in extent to the Siberian tundra, but the possession of a few hundred square miles of fruitful territory on the southwestern frontiers of his vast empire would be of greater value to the Tsar than that of those boundless wastes which are tenanted only by a few wretched pastoral tribes or some equally wretched fishermen. The Arctic forest regions are of a still greater extent than the vast treeless plains which they encircle. When we consider that they form an almost continuous belt, stretching through three parts of the world, in a breadth of 15 degrees to 20 degrees, even the woods of the Amazon, which cover a surface 15 times greater than that of the United Kingdom, shrink into comparative insignificance. Unlike the tropical forests, which are characterized by an immense variety of trees, these northern woods are almost entirely composed of coniferae, and one single kind of fir or pine often covers an immense extent of ground. The European and Asiatic species differ, however, from those which grow in America. Thus, in the Russian Empire and Scandinavia, we find the Scotch fir, the Siberian fir and larch, the Pycha obovada and the Pinus sembra, while in the Hudson's Bay territories, the woods principally consist of the white and black spruce, the Canadian larch and the grey pine. In both continents, birch trees grow farther to the north than the coniferae, and the dwarf willows form dense thickets on the shores of every river and lake. Various species of the surface tree, the ash and the alder, are also met with in the Arctic forests, and both under the shelter of the woods and beyond their limits, nature, as if to compensate for the want of fruit trees, 
produces in favourable localities an abundance of bilberries, bogberries, cranberries, etc., whose fruit is a great boon to the man and beast. When congealed by the autumnal frosts, the berries frequently remain hanging on the bushes until the snow melts in the following June and are then a considerable resource to the flocks of waterfowl migrating to their northern breeding places or to the bear awakening from his winter sleep. Another distinctive character of the forests of the high latitudes is their apparent youth, so that generally the traveller would hardly suppose them to be more than 50 years or at most a century old. Their juvenile appearance increases on advancing northward until suddenly their decrepit age is revealed by the thick bushes of lichens which clothe or hang down from their shriveled boughs. Farther to the south, large trees are found scattered here and there, but not so numerous as to modify the general appearance of the frost. And even these are mere dwarfs when compared to the gigantic firs of more temperate climates. This phenomenon is sufficiently explained by the shortness of the summer, which, though able to bring forth new shoots, does not last long enough for the formation of wood. Hence the growth of trees becomes slower and slower on advancing to the north, so that on the banks of the Great Bear Lake, for instance, 400 years are necessary for the formation of a trunk, not thicker than a man's waist, Toward the confines of the tundra, the woods are reduced to stunted stems, covered with blighted buds that have been unable to develop themselves into branches, and which prove by their numbers how frequently and how vainly they have striven against the wind, until finally the last remnants of arboreal vegetation, vanquished by the blasts of winter, seek refuge under a carpet of lichens and mosses, from which their annual shoots hardly venture to peep forth. A third peculiarity which distinguishes the forests of the north from those of the tropical world is what may be called their harmless character. There the traveller finds none of those noxious plants whose juices contain a deadly poison, and even thorns and prickles are of a rare occurrence. No venomous snake glides through the thicket, no crocodile lurks in the swamp, and the northern beasts of prey the bear, the lynx, the wolf are far less dangerous and bloodthirsty 
than the large Philidae of the torrid zone. The comparatively small number of animals living in the Arctic forests correspond with the monotony of their vegetation. Here we should seek in vain for that immense variety of insects, all those troops of gaudy birds which in the Brazilian woods excite the admiration and not unfrequently cause the despair of the wanderer. Hence we should in vain expect to hear the clamorous voices that resound in the tropical thickets. No noisy monkeys or quarrelsome parrots settle on the branches of the trees. No shrill cicada or melancholy goat suckers interrupt the solemn stillness of the night. The howl of the hungry wolf or the hoarse screech of some solitary bird of prey are almost the only sounds that ever disturb the repose of these awful solitudes. When the tropical hurricane sweeps over the virgin forests, it awakens a thousand voices of alarm. But the arctic storm, however furiously it may blow, scarcely calls forth an echo from the dismal shades of the pine woods of the north. In one respect, only the forests and swamps of the northern regions vie in abundance of animal life with those of the equatorial zone. For the legions of gnats which the short polar summer calls forth from the arctic morasses are a no less intolerable plague than the mosquitoes of the tropical marshes. Though agriculture encroaches but little upon the arctic woods, yet the agency of man is gradually working a change in their aspect. Large tracts of forest are continually wasted by extensive fires, kindled accidentally or intentionally, which spread with rapidity over a wide extent of country and continue to burn until they are extinguished by heavy rain. Sooner or later, a new growth of timber springs up, but the soil being generally enriched and saturated with alkali now no longer brings forth its aboriginal furs but gives birth to a thicket of beeches in Asia or of aspens in America. The line of perpetual snow may naturally be expected to descend lower and lower on advancing to the pole, and hence many mountainous regions or elevated plateau, such as the interior of Spitsbergen, of Greenland, of Nova Zembla, etc., which in a more temperate clime would be verdant with woods or meadows, are here covered with vast fields of ice, 
from which frequently glaciers descend down to the verge of the sea. But even in the highest northern latitudes, no land has yet been found covered as far as the water's edge with eternal snow, or where winter has entirely subdued the powers of vegetation. The reindeer of Spitsbergen find near 80 degrees north lichens or grasses to feed upon. In favourable seasons the snow melts by the end of June. On the plains of Melville Island and numerous lemmings requiring vegetable food for their subsistence, inhabit the deserts of New Siberia as far as man has reached to the north, vegetation, when fostered by a sheltered situation and refraction of solar heat from the rocks, has everywhere but found to rise to a considerable altitude above the level of sea and should be land at the North Pole, there be every reason to believe that it is a destitute neither of animal nor vegetable life. It would be equally erroneous to suppose that the cold of winter invariably increases as we near the pole, as the temperature of a land is influenced by many other causes besides its latitude. Even in the most northern regions hitherto visited by man, the influence of the sea, particularly when favoured by warm currents, is found to mitigate the severity of the winter, while at the same time it diminishes the warmth of summer. On the other hand, the large continental tracts of Asia or America that shelve toward the pole have a more intense winter cold and a far greater summer's heat than many coast lands or islands situated far nearer to the pole. Thus to cite but a few examples the western shores of Nova Zembla, fronting a wide expanse of sea, have an average winter temperature of only minus four degrees and a mean summer temperature but little above the freezing point of water. The influence of the winds is likewise of considerable importance in determining the greater or lesser severity of an arctic climate. Thus the northerly winds which prevail in Baffin's Bay and Davis's Straits during the summer months and fill the straits of the American northeastern archipelago with ice are probably the main cause of the abnormal depression of temperature in that quarter while, on the contrary, the southerly winds that prevail during summer in the valley of the Mackenzie tend greatly to extend the forest of that favoured region 
nearly down to the shores of the Arctic Sea. Even in the depth of a Siberian winter, a sudden change of wind is able to raise the thermometer from a mercury-congealing cold to a temperature above the freezing point of water, and a warm wind has been known to cause rain to fall in Spitsbergen in the month of January. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're not feeling too cold after that polar read, and I hope you are feeling a little drowsy. I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, I hope you get some sleep and enjoy a good night's rest. Good night.